Hello again and welcome back to the Quantum Podcast, people of the internet. My name is Ethan Morland and I aim to speak to high performers about the hows and the whys behind what they do, break it down with them and create bite-sized lessons for you listeners to take away and learn from. So I hope you enjoyed part one with Jack Mason and I've had him on again to talk about his time, this time as a police officer, because the first time we ran out of time and I hadn't even got to any of the questions about being a police officer. So I was like, mate, I've got to have you on again. And he happily obliged. So thank you, Jack, for that. So as you can imagine, in this episode, we talk about all things policing. So we go from the initial application process to becoming a policeman to then what the vetting process is like, the first sort of jobs that you're put on when you become a police officer, um, things that you deal with on when you're on call, the shifts, patterns, um, are they paid enough? Are they paid their overtime? All these different questions that people probably want to know. It's also a good one for those who are thinking of maybe going into the police and you sat on the fence. Again, Jack provides a really great insight into what it was like to be a policeman. And if you have any questions, please feel free to go check Jack out on TikTok. I'll provide his links in the description. And also remember to like, subscribe, share the podcast with anyone who may be interested as we continue to grow and the podcast just gets bigger and bigger week on week. So thank you very much for that. So make sure to enjoy the episode. And again, thank you, Jack, for your time. And yeah, enjoy. Okay, so Jack, welcome back to Quantum. How are you doing? Thank you for having me back. Yeah, all good. All good. Good to be back. Um, so I really enjoyed the last one. Really, really enjoyed it. It was so interesting to hear some of the stories you had and your takes on different things, which is why... We're obviously coming back to talk about your time in the police. So we'll sort of go from when you were at the end of your time in the prison system. So what sort of instigated that transition into the police from the prison system? Yeah, I think it's um, it's a combination of things. Like, as I said before, I think I always wanted to be in the police and I naturally felt the time in the prison service. I, like I moved jobs sort of every two years anyway. That seems to be my sort of natural tenure. So I started the application process um, because prison was prison was getting tough and I wasn't enjoying it all that much at that point. Um, the wing we were on was really stressful. So I'd started looking for other jobs anyway. And then I put in for the police national graduate leadership program, which is called Police Now, um, who I'd applied to before and they, they'd said no. So I'd applied with them and that process took about from first application through to accepting the offer was about a year so that it was a, a big thing but it was always sort of playing in the back of my mind that I was like this is the next step sort of thing I wanted some progression there wasn't much progression open to me in the prison at that time like all of the positions that you could develop into were kind of filled um, so I was like I just wanted to do something a bit different and yeah, applied for the police, had that running for like the last eight months of my job uh, there. And then obviously that got accepted. So just handed my notice in. So the application itself is quite intense from what I've heard. I've seen uh, circumstances where people have been rejected into the police based on the fact that they are with someone or have a family member who has a criminal record, even a minor criminal record. So what like what are some of the things that happen during the application process? So they do sort of 
all of that tends to come with the vetting side, right? So initially, and I can talk only really to the police now side of things. So you have to do an initial application and then it's like an online situational judgment test. So they present you with some scenarios and you pick what you would do in that situation. Um, and I think some of the forces mirror that as well. So they have a, a similar sort of system or they'll have a paper sift at that point um, and immediately rule some people out. Um, with police now from there, it was then online maths and English assessments, which was fine. Um, then it's an interview and like role play scenario in London. So I had to go into London. We were at this event for the day. Um, you would have some interviews with the sort of recruiting team and a couple of officers, and then they would put you through a role play, which they monitored um, to see how you did. And that was all about how you manage conflict uh, and conflicting interests in the role. So it's very specific to what we did. And I know the police do like an assessment center that's very, the, like the, the forces traditional entry route do something that's very similar. Um, then once you get through all that, they tell you whether you've been sort of provisionally offered a place um, and that is all subject to vetting. So then the whole vetting process starts and that's that can take between three to six months on its own because they do social media trawls, they check your immediate family, um, check your immediate family out. If there's anyone in your extended family with a criminal record, you should declare it anyway. Um, as long as they're extended, it's not usually too much of an issue. It depends on the severity of what they've done. Immediate family can be an issue, as you've said. Um, but again, in my opinion, as long as you're up front and you declare it and they don't find it, if they find it, you're out pretty much because it's dishonesty. Um, yeah, my, my only sort of thing throughout that is, is just be honest. But yeah, the vetting goes into quite some detail because you have to be given security clearance level vetting in the UK, which is it's, it's fairly heavy, like... I had to delete a Twitter account and stuff like that to, um, so that, you know, if I was brought into disrepute, they wouldn't, journalists wouldn't go through and find my Twitter, which was from years ago. Um, hadn't actually used it for years, but, um, suffice to say some of the opinions on it were quite outdated and wouldn't play very well if a journalist got hold of them. So uh, it was that, yeah, they just make sure they, that they clear up things like that before it's an issue. Yeah. The, it's interesting that because I, had a similar thing as well where I had a Twitter account from when I was like 11 to 15 and I had to delete that because there was some very public arguments with friends on Twitter that now would not go down well like and it's it's a real problem now that people don't realize that like what you tweet when you're 12 or 13 or post on Instagram can really come back to bite you in the arse later Oh yeah, hugely, absolutely. My, mine were, I was, when I, it was actually when I was in the prison service, early days, um, so it was like two years old, there was, um, Diane Abbott was the shadow home secretary at the time, and she's very anti-police and anti-establishment, and she put up a video of, to be honest, what I consider, it was a bit heavy-handed, but it was the police arresting someone. And I basically tweeted a barrage at her about how she had no idea what she was talking about and that she was welcome to come down to like, you know, prison or police training centers and try out the use of force and the scenarios and stuff. And the police were like, yeah, it doesn't play too well generally when you go after politicians. So just get rid of that. We'll be good. That's funny. <laughs> no, that's great. Um, so then obviously once you find out you're going into the police, what was your first role that you went into? 
So the first role, um, the first role was obviously training, but it was only six weeks long. And then out of training, you go into what they call supervised patrol or like your tutor phase, which is normally between sort of 10 and 12 weeks. And that was me and another person off our scheme in, you know, one car with a, an experienced tutor constable who'd been doing it for five or six years at that point. Um, and we were with one tutor for like two or three weeks and then we were with a tutor so that was from a central hub where we worked and then we went out to our station which is one of the satellite stations and we had a tutor there for the remainder of of that three month period and essentially all that happens there you're on response so 999 call comes in you respond to it any calls that come in generally response officers will will go out to it um and that can be anything from you know domestics to violent crime to robberies in progress to um, things like sudden deaths uh, concerns for welfare anything like that any child protection issues so you the, the whole point of that period is over those three months you get exposed to as much as you can physically be exposed to so that after that month after those three months are then classed as independent so you go out on your own so at that point you are expected to turn up to calls and deal with basic stuff on your own um, obviously you can still call other people so yeah you go straight into into tutoring um, out of training okay which is, is nice because that's now we apply the theory and the law that we've learned and this is how it replicates in practice in under that supervision do they stagger the severity of circumstances that they send you out to so for example nope. obviously <laughs> so you don't so they literally just send you to whatever comes first come first serve so so generally you'll have a list of things that you have to attend um and ideally tutor units are protected um protected call signs on the radio so they call up for stuff rather than being dispatched to however when i was in they weren't as protected because staffing was quite low so when i was in tutorship they weren't as protected and they would just say, you know, we haven't got anybody else. Can you guys go and deal with this domestic? Can you guys, you know, go to the reports of man with baseball bat or whatever? So largely um, they wouldn't send to you. Your tutor would sort of try and cherry pick the stuff that you needed to go and see for your uh, progression and to tick off the element in the report so that you guys could, could progress. Um, but they also wanted you to get a very well-rounded experience of what policing was like as a whole. So they didn't try to say, okay, we're only going to stuff that we want to go to today. There would be a, if there's this, we'll go to it. If not, we'll just call up for whatever comes out. Okay. And then on a side note of that, was the three months of training or supervision enough to then go out on your own and be independent, independent? <clears throat> no. But I'll caveat that by saying I don't think any length of supervision is a reasonable length because whenever you go out on your own, like it's almost like you need to go out on your own because that's where you gain the confidence. You don't gain the confidence while you still have the, the safety net of a tutor. You gain the confidence by going out and dealing with something on your own. So I don't think that's what it's designed to do. I think it's just designed to give you here is the procedure that you follow at these events. <clears throat> excuse me and here is the form that you need to fill out here's the paperwork you need to do um 
and once you've done that then you just sort of get better every time you you go to them you can you can deal with incidents quicker you find your own sort of rhythm of dealing with you know complaints from members of the public when you get there you find your own rhythm of dealing with suspects dealing with victims how you go through statements things like that so it all it takes a long time to do everything at first uh, and then the more you do it the easier it all gets but i think like you, you need to go out on your own because yeah. that's where the confidence gets built at what point then from when you were left after the three months of supervision um did you then start to feel confident in what you were doing it's hard to say um i'd say i'd say around the six month mark so we'd been in training from june to june to like mid-july then tutorship from like july to september and then september to january we were just out on response with the rest of the team and i reckon in january we were just about at the point where we were comfortable dealing with most things that came in bar something major um like we could all me and and, and the lady i joined with could both do traffic stops would both go and deal with calls on our own um we each had things that we preferred to go and deal with so you'll find like certain people on the team are certain better at certain things um so you'll have people that are better with domestics for some reason so if, if they're available they'll usually just go and do them because they can get them done quickly and then they're not bothered um there'll be people who are better with like children so they'll go to child protects or like antisocial behavior stuff there'll be people who just know the area a little bit better so they'll go to grab intelligence or things like that um yeah i think about six months after joining is where you felt I'm in a little groove now that I can sit in for. What were you most confident with in terms of specific situations to deal with? I mean, I, I dealt, I dealt with a fair few sudden deaths. That was my, um, it seemed to be every time I was on shift, someone died somewhere. So, um, I, I went to a few of them and I was fine with them. Like that was something that didn't bother me. Um, because the, the most job there is sort of compassion for family and then just making sure there's no foul play. Um, I don't know if you know, but the police go to all of them. So if someone dies unexpectedly, the police will attend every single one of them. The ambulance will call us and we go along on behalf of the coroner just to check nothing is amiss. Uh, so yeah, I did, did a fair few of them, but I mean, largely it would be whatever came out. So it could be domestics, antisocial driving. The, the biggest things in our area were domestics and burglaries. So those would be the time, the things you spent your, your most time doing. What area was that that you were working in? Um, I won't say specifically, yeah. but it was an area just outside of London. Ah, okay. So, but it was quite well to do. There was a real mixture of, like you had a very wealthy area and then almost across the road, you had quite deprived um, areas as well. So there was a real contrast and that leads to, you know, tensions and, you know, yeah. the yeah, the, the nicer areas, there's a lot of burglaries in the more deprived areas. There's a lot of domestics, antisocial behavior, drugs, that kind of stuff. So yeah, it was quite a mix. So you, you've said that your most common incidents that you seem to deal with was the sudden deaths. What were some of the weirdest incidences that you had to deal with? Oh, weird incidents. Oh. That's a really good question, actually, because so, 
everything's a little bit weird. Yeah, so right? I'll give I'll give you the instance. So when I had Ben on, I asked him the same question, and he had ones where he he was told that a, there was a girl getting mugged down an alleyway, and it turned out to be a lorry driver who was dressed as a girl, um, who was basically just roaming the streets, just making noise. There was another one where he got called out to a barn because he thought someone was getting attacked. It turned out to be a porn being porn movie being filmed. So it's anything, everything by the sounds of it. But what were your most weird incidences? Um, got called to a house where it was at a really well-to-do estate, and one of the neighbours had called and said, "Oh my God, there's this huge gang of people that have just broken in." And they're making all this noise and racket and smashing the place up. And we were like, oh, okay, so like three or four units went. So there's like 20, 25 people. So three or four of us pitched up. And there's just some guy filming a music video. And it was like, oh, really? Um, I've had multiple things like... When, when you start looking for missing persons, your brain does really weird things as to how they can go. Because it's impossible to realize, to know where someone's gone. Yeah. So you start looking in really strange places. And I remember you, you look around and sometimes see officers like searching drawers. And you're like, you're not going to, no one's going to be in a drawer. Um, but you'll end up in like the middle of the woods somewhere, in the middle of nowhere, pitch black at night. Oh and then the radio will go, oh yeah, we found them. They were hiding under their bed. And you're like, great, I'll trek back to the car for 15 minutes now. Um, there's a, a, a really surreal one I went to. It was a massive fire where this building had caught fire. And you know, like in, in films, you get the stereotypical, like, things are falling off the roof and yeah. the struts are coming in and it's all very dramatic that was that was happening to this building and actually being there and watching it was really really weird because suddenly it hits you if any of that hits you it's going to kill you so <laughs> very much like i should probably step back a little bit from this oh my but like we just stood there watching like the entire roof there, there's like a safe passage where you could literally watch the rear of the roof just collapse off wow. the top of the building like firing roofing tiles into the floor at high speed and it was watching that like, this is insane fire is terrifying I've watched, generally it's, it's mad isn't it because as police you're there to obviously help with safety but in what scenario can you do anything there you literally have to just stand oh. and watch yeah, yeah like we, that, that's all we did is just build cordons and then the firefighters turn up and, and give them credit because I wouldn't do what they do yeah. of course they, you know they do go in and they come out and go oh it's hot in there. It's like, yeah, all right, calm down. <laughs> but like, credit to them because they go and do that. I, I wouldn't like seeing how unstable that building was, and how quickly these guys just turn up, gear on, straight in, go looking for people. That's yeah. insane. So, as a police officer, you obviously do sh a lot of shift work. So, early's, late's, uh, night shifts. Which was the hardest shift in terms of? The amount of incidences you had to deal with, the severity of incidents you had to deal with, and that kind of thing. Mm. So, that, like the hardest shift, sometimes most of the time, are night shifts because between the hours of like one and five, you'll either be manically busy or nothing will happen. There's no in between. So you'll either be locked on a job for those those hours, or you'll be driving around trying to see if anything suspicious is happening, but there isn't because everyone's asleep. Um, even criminals sleep sometimes, right? So there'll be night shifts where you're just, and that's when your body's natural clock starts to take over and you start to like struggle to stay awake. And you now you've got to go stand out in the freezing cold air in January to wake up and things like that. 
Um, early's can be really, really manic, especially if like you know you have early shifts where you start at seven and the first call comes in at five two seven. So sometimes you won't even make briefing; you're just straight out the straight out the, straight in, get on straight out the door. Um, and then you might be dealing with that for the rest of the shift. You might be dealing with it till lunchtime. Depends on what it is. There can be all sorts. So. I think lates were my favourites because you got a taste of the afternoon and you got a taste of the evening. So you got the sort of early evening where you'd get if you had sort of, we didn't have a lot of pubs and bars that caused a lot of trouble, but if you'd get parties and drinkers and stuff like that, so you'd get the standard stuff that comes with all of that um, in the evening and then in the afternoon you get, you know, you get a bit of the domestics, you get a bit of the antisocial behaviour, kids kicking out from school and going and graffiti in shops and things like that. Um, Lates are my favourite, but yeah, earlies and nights can be really tough. Especially if you do like if you do a bit of overtime with earlies and you end up doing three, because normally you do early, early, late, late, night, night. So if you do an extra early at the beginning, by the time you get to the third one, you're literally on your knees, like need to sleep. And then you usually sleep until your late shift the next day. So as well, uh, so on top of this, so there you're doing, you, so the hours are set, aren't they? So say, for example, you're on an early, is it like a seven... Four, seven, five. Yeah, seven, four. Okay, so seven, four, and response. When I was in neighbourhoods, our earlies were seven, five, okay. generally. So we worked longer shifts, but less of them. Different shift pattern for neighbourhoods. Yeah. But yeah, response, which is where most people will end up, is seven, four. You're doing the seven, four, but say at three, three thirty, you get called out to a domestic. You're dealing with that domestic for say two or three hours. Do you, will they pay you that extra that you've worked or do they, it, is it like sort of, because from what I've heard from the NHS, there's a lot of people who just get left unpaid for the extra hours that they're working week on week. Yeah. So my experience with that is the police were really good and generally, so your late shift comes in at three, they either come in at one or three and they'll be on training from one until three or they'll just start the shift at three generally. So you'll usually have a late car in at that point so if something came in at half three etiquette kind of dictates that the late shift would take it because it's come after three o'clock so generally stuff like that you'd be all right but if you were out like i remember two o'clock on an early shift and i was still out with my tutor at this point and just came across these two lads looking a bit shifty in a car there was a faint smell of cannabis in the area you know stopped to matter chat found out who they were they had intel for drugs and stuff on them so searched them and searched the car and we found a decent amount of like weed and white powder on them so they were both nicked for possession with intent to supply that meant our 4 30 finish was now 7 30 pretty much because by the time we'd gone back processed them booked the drugs in um i can't remember whether we interviewed i think we wrote up an interview plan for someone else to do on the late shift but then you have to write the crime report your statement arrest statement anything like that and I think I got home about eight o'clock and my wife was expecting me home about half four. So that was fun. Um, but generally what you do then is you speak to your inspector and say that like on the next shift, you just send them an email and said, oh, by the way, I got off at 7.30 yesterday. First half an hour in policing is for the king. So you don't get paid for your first half an hour. That is the king and country. Uh, and then after that, it's time and a half. You get paid for overtime if it's unplanned. That so, is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my yes, life. Yes, it is. <laughs> Half an hour, you don't get paid for king and country. 
Yeah, so if you get off at four thirty, you just you don't get any extra overtime. And like generally, if you got off at five, you just wouldn't bother. It's yeah. if you stayed for an extended amount of time that's when you say to the inspector because the inspector might say I'm not paying you for half an hour. Like go away. <laughs> that's that's, that's um, fair enough. Like if you you know if you if it's half an hour once in a blue moon, it's fine. But that idea of you're not getting paid for the extra because it's for king and country is just ridiculous. I've never heard anything like it's, that. Yeah, it's a tough one to um, some of the younger officers who joined, obviously, like generational differences. So I'm sort of like, I'm millennial, so I'm in the middle. So I'm a bit like, eh, it's, it's not great. I'm not going to complain. <laughs> like, it's just the way things are. And they were like, oh my God, that's so unfair. <laughs> it's like, it's just... of all the things about this job that are unfair, that's the one you're going to hang out. Okay, yeah. cool. <laughs> uh, so that's so ridiculous. But yeah, it's, yes. But no, well, I was always, I was always paid for overtime. I never had any issues sorting it out either so that that's my experience that's others mileage may vary yeah because i think the the common conception that we have of the you know the public services like the working in the nhs for the police is that they do stupid overtime and don't get paid for it so it's for probably people who are listening to this and to get an idea as to what it's like to do a career it's probably good for them to know that actually they will get paid for overtime that they do sort of thing yeah and i mean it's not even because, you know, I did a, a stint on an attachment with traffic where I was with traffic for a month as well. And traffic, you're never off on time. Like I can categorically say in the month I was there, I maybe finished a shift on time once. Like you are always an hour to an hour and a half behind minimum. And even in little stints like that, we got paid. There was always, you message the inspector, I'll stop, I'll finish time at three, we got away at half four. Okay, there's your code for an hour's overtime. Just punch it into the system, send it over to me and I'll authorise it. So even in a consistent like dribs and drabs, they will still they still paid me. Yeah. So that was my experience with it. Going back to that incident where you said you'd found the lads with the cannabis and the drugs, um the paperwork side of it, I've met so I had an incident years ago when I was um about seventeen, I got mugged at a train station and the people who came to deal uh, with the situation one of them had actually just finished uni and was under the supervision and she was saying that she was never she was not told of how intense the paperwork would be so for yourself how bad was it doing all the paperwork side of it oh see now i had a very like subjective view to it because in the prison service everything is documented and it's documented by hand so it's not it's very rarely updated on a system unless it's a prisoner record so things like intelligence you would have to fill out six different bits of paperwork to make that happen so when i got to the police it was kind of like a welcome break because for a traditional thing say you got called out to something you'd have to launch a crime report on the crime reporting system you then have to put a detailed report of what the incident was, who arrived, uh, what actions were taken. Then you'd have to put a checklist on of things that needed doing in case it got handed off to someone else or for you, if you're going to come in on your next shift and pick it up again. Then you'd have to attach things like if you arrested someone, there's an arrest statement. Um, if there's a victim, there's a victim statement. All of that kind of stuff. That isn't too bad generally for run-of-the-mill incidents like domestics it's where you get into if you got into like case files and stuff so if you say if, if we ran a domestic through from start to finish you arrest the perpetrator at the scene you bring them in they're clearly a danger to their partner so you want to remand them in custody until court the next day that's another form you've got to fill out you've got to justify why you want to remand them 
That means you've also got to charge them, so you need to fill out a charge sheet which goes to a sergeant justifying why they're charged. You have to fill out um, then maybe like a stolen or lost or damaged property form with the victim so that they can get compensated. You then got to fill out like all the safeguarding stuff that goes with it. So you'll do paperwork at the scene in the form of like safeguarding assessments, victim statements, general just sort of observations of what's going on. Then you've got to write up your interview, your interview plan. You've got to do the interview. You've then got to store the tapes. So it, like if you run something from start to finish to all the way through building a case file to remand someone, that is that will take you all shift easily. So you're looking at eight hours of paperwork. Um, for like maybe five minutes of action when you arrest someone so it can be full-on for smaller incidents they'll essentially just say can you put something on the box and that's literally can you just record that this happened and we'll close it straight out uh, which means the level of detail doesn't have to be as great you just have to log who's involved what the intelligence was and that there's no reasonable lines of inquiry so we're closing it down um but yeah like if you spread the paper bear in mind you'd be working on some jobs for like a month while you line up interviews, um, go and collect the right statements, go and collect CCTV. So if you spread the paperwork out, it's not too bad. It's only where it comes in, you've got to make a case file to take to CPS. That's probably the most concentrated bit of paperwork that you do. Um, because that, that, like you'd be given the shift by your sergeant, get your case file done. And that will be you writing everything down, making sure you've got everything and then submitting it and CPS inevitably ringing you and tell you that you've missed something and you've got to go and do that do it again so yeah or like drink driving there's a lot of paperwork that goes with a drink driving or a drug driving offense um, anything that requires blood or samples being taken just adds to that but fairly run-of-the-mill stuff you can you know it's not too bad it's not too bad but yeah running stuff through start to finish case files is a nightmare <laughs> sounds it absolutely sounds it so when you're doing these case files and stuff like that if you miss a bit of information on a case will that throw the entire case out and have you experienced that I, i've not experienced it no generally the cps will go back so there's there's like a checklist that you run through of the basic things that cps will need um, and generally if you missed one of those cps would call you and be like we need this can you just and then cps might come back to you for more information it's okay well in order to build the strongest case possible against this person, we're going to need to, you mentioned this person in your statement, so we're going to need to go and talk to them. You need a statement from them. Um, have you checked these areas for CCTV because you've not mentioned anywhere in your statement that you have? So can you just clarify for us whether there's CCTV that's outstanding? Um, generally, C yeah, CPS will come back with a checklist of stuff. It doesn't necessarily mean the case is thrown straight out. If something like talk about um, drug driving cases, if it's really weird the system was so logged at one point that it was taken five and a half months to get a sample of blood back and the limitation on prosecution is six months so it's literally like most drug cases were down to the wire as to whether you'd get them because if it comes back after six months it's basically invalid like blood tests aren't valid anymore and you, the case just goes if you miss something big or if something gets lost or witnesses pull out or victims pull out that's when cases generally tend to get dropped but most of the time cps will say from the outset not enough here to prosecute just close it out no further action because you're not going to be able to get anything so the police can do all of the work and send all of their paperwork off and be like yes result 
and CPS would go, no, there's not enough there. How frustrating is it when you say, for example, you know someone has done something and you're, you're ga- like in your head, you're like, they could go to prison for this. But then CPS turns around and goes, no, throw the case out. How frustrating is that? Uh, yeah, I mean, it didn't happen to me. A couple of my cases got thrown out before sending to CPS. So you'd ring like a sergeant for a charging decision and they go, there's, there's just not enough there. And that would be frustrating because I've caught a drug driver who that happened with. Um, and that, that was that was frustrating. But you see it for other guys in the team. It's a bit run of the mill for them. It is disappointing. And they do go, oh, it's really frustrating, especially if it's someone who's quite prolific in the area and we had the chance to put them away for six months to a year just to give ourselves a break more than anything else. Um, but, you know, you have the chance to take someone who's actually dangerous and causing a lot of grief in the area and put them in prison. And CPS go, no, it's really frustrating, but it is part and parcel of the job. As long as you're, all the frustrations directed at CPS, as long as you're happy that you've done everything, then most people would just, they'd be a bit, pissed off for a shift and then they'd be fine um and going back to the case again where you said you picked up the two lads for the drugs what's the mentality within the police now regarding cannabis because obviously in america you've got specific states that have legalized it here in australia it's legal by prescription so although it is illegal in the uk how do police treat it so we've got a very low level disposal called a community resolution um, and it's designed for any offense it can be used for any offense but it's it's on the spot and people don't you don't get arrest um, and it's a very small warning it goes on your record but only like it'll only show up if you had an enhanced dbs check so not a normal dbs check you'd be fine but if you want to work with kids or like security or airports that kind of stuff it would show up then and it stays there for six years so that's the that's the favorable way of dealing with cannabis generally if it's person like a small amount of personal use um if it's i mean like if we're talking like crumbs and negligible bin that's it it's out of their hands it's out of yours it's out of the community job done if it's you know a packet it will it'll be seized um and you can generally go through the process of if they haven't had a community resolution then your options are a bit limited and it does involve like but you generally wouldn't arrest someone on the spot for it um if it's personal use you'd organize a voluntary interview for them to come back another time and talk about it if they refuse to attend that then you go and arrest them but generally there's no there's no immediate harm in the community to someone having a bit of cannabis on them that's the way it's viewed. So like if I found someone with uh, like Coke or ecstasy or anything like that, that's an arrest. It's class A. So I, my personal opinions on it is like the stuff that's out there today is quite strong from chatting to, you know, the sort of 15, 16 year olds who are smoking it. They're ridiculously sort of high on the intake and they say it's really strong. And there's been an increase in sort of like cannabis induced psychosis, that kind of stuff. So I'm on the fence on like legalization. If legalization meant a standardization of strains and that we could control how strong something was, fantastic, all for that, because then you can keep the medicinal purposes or the recreational purposes without the harm. Um, if you just legalize the stuff that's out there today, no, everyone would go 
crazy. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of people in the police have a view that cannabis is bad. And I think that's, it's almost an old fashioned attitude, but because it leads to other things, right? Because cannabis is so widespread in its use, people drive under the influence of cannabis and think it's fine. And it's not, it kills people and like delays your reactions and all sorts. So I think there's that element of, and you're also buying into like a lot of the time, sometimes there'll just be a small local dealer somewhere, but a lot of the time you're buying into and financing a wider drugs trade. That's the whole issue. So I think if cannabis was legalized, it takes that element of business away from those gangs. But I think most people know the police have the negative view of cannabis sort of outright. And I think it's due to what it causes rather than it being a harmful substance in itself. Yeah, it's, it's definitely, it's, it's one that I think I'm, I'm sat on the fence, but edging towards legalization because obviously there are the medicinal purposes which can benefit certain groups of people. And also for the benefit of the, the government in terms of like the taxation they can put on that, that can then benefit other parts of how the country runs in terms of the NHS. We know the NHS is very quickly running out of money and more in more and more debt. Like it can benefit certain things. So in my head, it's like, for the problems it causes in terms of, you know, on the low level, like you've got a 15, 16 year old who's smoking it maybe a bit too often. And then also you've got the medicinal side where it benefits certain people. I, in my opinion, I'm kind of like, it's just not worth the hassle for the police. If you get what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. I totally get that. And I think we're seeing a shift, especially in the Met. Um, there was a shift. Because I did, I did a, a couple of shifts with the Met while I was in the training program because it's a Met-centred uh, graduate scheme. So you're sort of like we did a few shadowing shifts with the Met, if you like. We went out with officers on the beat. We had powers and stuff, but we would largely just sort of see how things unfolded. And a lot of them were of the opinion that it, it should be and that cannabis isn't the real problem and that there's other stuff that's bigger and more dangerous that they should be focusing on. So, yeah. I think the opinion is changing because the Met generally leads the charge with everything. So as you can see with all the negative stuff happening with them at the moment, all of the other forces will be feeling that. But as they make changes, generally forces around them make the change a little bit of time afterwards as well. So I think as their opinion changes towards it, other forces' opinions will change towards it. Well, What's the most common drug that you would seize on a day-to-day -day basis? Um, yeah, cannabis easily. Um, some, sometimes you'd see synthetics, so things like spice, um, which is awful. Um, there were a lot of sort of NOS, but you, you know, under, under current legislation, there's not much power to seize it. Um, or you can seize it, but it's not an offense to have it, if that makes sense. So it's, it's a weird sort of middle gray ground that the UK government are trying to hash out at the minute without victimizing chefs and people who use like NOS canisters in legitimate purposes. So yeah, I'd say cannabis would be the most common. Um, the one after that would be white powder of any kind. In, just in general. Yeah, it could. Uh, and sometimes it come back as like methamphetamine. Sometimes it come back as cocaine. Sometimes it'd be ecstasy. Sometimes it'd be baking powder and someone's having a giggle with you. So, you know, it's, 
yeah, it happens. <laughs> yeah, I remember a few years ago, uh, Leeds Festival, someone had bags of white powder seized and it turned out it was just creatine. They were selling creatine to people for a very large sum of money at the festival. <laughs> I can imagine, yeah. But I mean, who are you going to call? Exactly. <laughs> I tried to buy Coke and my dealer screwed me over. <laughs> so oh no, it's it? a shame. <laughs> um, you, you said as well that like you'll find spice on the streets. Obviously working in a prison as well where it seems to be a big problem. Is it more common on the streets or is it more common in prison? More common in prison, I think partially because you can get cannabis for cheap outside. So, you know, the cannabis market in the UK is very saturated. So generally you'll be able to find cannabis at quite a low cost, whereas in prison spice is cheaper. It's still ludicrously expensive because of the dangers of importing it, making it, all of that stuff. Like if you think about what something's street value is, times it by 10 and that's where you're at for the prison value of it. So, you know, if you're looking for a bit of weed that'll cost you 30 quid on the outside, you're looking at 300 pound on the inside because of the added cost. So spice would cost less inside. It's easier to make and it's easier to hide. Cannabis is very distinctive in how it looks um, and you can't really disguise it as anything else. Whereas spice can be, um, it can be like tobacco, it can look like tobacco flakes. It can look like a whole load of other stuff. They can dip paper or photos in it. Um, and then when they let it dry, send a letter into a prisoner uh, and then they can rip it up and smoke the, the sheep and that'll get high. So spice is really easy to hide. I think you found spice on the outside more in regular drug users than in sort of casual drug users. You know, the, the sort of people who are, you know, desperate to sort of escape from their life so they will take what is there rather than you know, they might have a long-term addiction to coke or heroin or, or anything like that, but they will take in, in between those doses where they can't scramble the money together to get enough, they'll take things like spice just to sort of pass the time, if you like. And then moving on to different kinds of crime. So in America, we know that they're, a big problem for them is gun crime and, you know, mass shootings and things like that. But what seems to go a lot more under the radar, but seems to be a huge problem in the UK because I lived in Liverpool where it was a massive issue with, is knife crime. So the area you were working in, how bad was it? And also, are there any ways that the police can actually prevent it? It was like people were carrying knives a lot. Um, and it was worrying, you know, the ages of these kids who were carrying knives, so 14, 15, 16. And they didn't quite understand the implications of what carrying one was. A lot of them were carrying it because it was cool. And then they'd tell you it was for self-defense. And, you know, it's like, well, you're still getting arrested, dude. Like, you can't walk around with a knife. I don't care what you've got one for. Um, we didn't have a lot of stabbings in our area. Um, there were a couple of one major one just before I arrived. There were a couple while I was there, but they weren't bad or fatal. They were just sort of just attacks on people that sort of turn nasty. Um, but I mean, you know, I talked to my friend in the Met and they're dealing with a stabbing per set, if not per shift. So it is rife. And I just don't think people understand how quickly all it takes is once, you know, like one stray shot and you hit someone's heart or their throat or their jugular or you know, just 
you're not looking, you know, there's arteries everywhere that people don't know exist. There's one in the legs. You might think, oh, stab someone in the leg, it's fine. Hit the femoral artery, 30 seconds, they're gone. Yeah. You know, there's arteries in the armpits. There's all sorts of nasty places. Um, what can the police do? I mean, it's difficult because if you look at the way the Met handling things with their stop and search powers, there's been records of a fair bit of abuse of those powers because they're becoming so easy to just like there's ongoing information all the time about knives and weapons so where do you draw the line at who you stop and search or there's like things like a section 60 which just gives you permission to search anyone in a certain area with a certain description so you don't have to give grounds they're just in the area you can stop them i think it's a good tool if it's used properly stop and search has to be reasonable suspicion has to be grounds i don't think section 60 is a good way to deal with it um i think it's just about like the police it, it's the same thing i said about the prison service it's just funding it's more numbers we need more officers on the street we need more youth workers working with young people to steer them away from lifestyles where knives are going to be a big part of that and it's you know it's a lot of gang stuff it's a lot of just because it's cool there's a bit that needs to happen with social media about regulating what people under the age of 18 can see. And I'm not a big fan of censorship, but they're doing it because the people they look up to do it. Yeah. Uh, and out of that, you know, there just needs to be more sort of general positive male role models in society for these kids to look up to. How common is recruitment of kids into gangs? Because obviously that's a big side of it, whereby, like I think, if I remember it rightly, in Liverpool, the big the big story that was out was so a twelve year old girl was stabbed by a fourteen year old lad over an argument I think to do with a phone, and he'd been around. If I'm, I, I don't take me on this, but I I think it was because he'd been around specific people who were in gangs, so he was then carrying a knife. So how big is that issue of recruitment of children? I think yeah, you know, there are guys even on the smaller scales who aren't even, it's, it's not even big gangs, that's obviously an issue. And we had a couple of situations where kids had obviously been recruited by gang members because they'd taken random trips into London or whatever and then coming back. And you're like, okay, well, this, this is only one thing you're doing and they're on your own, like you're 12. Like, you shouldn't be going that far really without a parent. Um, and I think, you know, the county line stuff you hear is dreadful. Um, the area I was in was really bad for county lines. We had a lot because we were quite close to London. So we had a lot of trap houses and stuff that were that were out there. Um, generally, the people we came across were addicts, the adults and addicts rather than children. But the kids in our area were being picked up by small time dealers to run for them. So you'd find them with, you know, again, 14, 15, 16 year olds with stuff on them. And they just say, oh, it belongs, doesn't belong to me. They obviously wouldn't say who it was, but you know you can put the connection together with who they hang out with and the intelligence that's there. It's it's a problem that will go away once people realise that you can make money without looking over your shoulder and that you can be quite successful without being a gang member. But it's all about you know school and education needs to be more appealing than what they're getting paid for. You know, so because you know I had a friend at university who was. Um, I won't say his next gang member because he wasn't, but he ran packages for a few families in Manchester. 
um, just a couple of times because he didn't need it. But I mean, like one journey, you'd get paid some number of 50 quid for. You can't make that kind of money anywhere else. Like rarely, unless you're a millionaire, you know, it's so you have to reframe their entire mentality towards, yeah, but you're not going to die doing this. So like you're either going to die or end up in prison for a very long time. Like there were people I on the landings in prison with me serving 28, 29 years for importation, class A, importation, class B, Christ. like big sentences yeah. that will be most of your life behind bars. Uh, that's one thing. So, I... Go on, sorry. I was just going to say, so it's, there's a lot of facets that, that need to come together to solve it. It's not just a policing problem. It's a societal problem. So we need more social workers, we need more youth workers, education needs reform. Police need new ways of dealing with stuff that isn't just criminalising people. And yeah, we just need to crack down on the actual gangs themselves to stop the, the recruitment. Yeah. Then if we take it back to, so you're now, you've finished in the police, you left so that you could, you know, have a more normal work-life balance so that you could be around for your family. But looking back at when you started out in the prison service service and in the police what sort of three tips would you give yourself going into that kind of work um i think i've said it before you know two ears one mouth you know given that way for a reason listen figure out the dynamics of what's going on wherever you are so try and figure out the dynamics of a wing if you're in prison Try and figure out who's the power players, who are the, the sort of the sneaky ones, who are the ones that you can just have a conversation with. Figure that out before you boldly go in and assume everything. Um, be confident, but don't be arrogant. Um, you know, things like that. And I think except you're going to read, hear and see things that you don't agree with, um, like you ardently don't agree with, or that are going to stick with you for a while or as long as you accept that those things are going to happen it makes it easier to deal with them when they arise so yeah i guess it would be shut up and listen mostly before you act be confident but don't be arrogant and this applies across both of those don't think because you're a cop or a prison officer that you are better than anybody else or that you don't think of it as you have powers that other people don't have because that's a fast track to using them in the wrong way. You have powers to keep people safe is the way to look at it. So make sure you're using everything reasonably and the same in prison. And yeah, just be prepared that some of the stuff you're going to deal with is nasty. Some of the people you're going to meet are unapologetic about what they do. Um, and you're going to hear views and stuff that you don't agree with and you're going to be challenged by. You don't have to agree with them still, but those views are going to exist wherever you go. So just go in completely open-minded and accept. Like, I'll give you an example. The first time you go to like a fatal incident in the police, you should be mentally preparing yourself along the way. If, like, if you get dispatched to something that's already confirmed fatal, you should be preparing yourself on the way that what you're about to see is probably going to stick with you for the rest of your life as an image that will be seared into your brain. As long as you have that, you can't prepare yourself for the shock, but you can mentally just prime yourself that, okay, I'm going to need to be in a different headspace for this. Same in prison. When you go in, the conditions aren't great. It stinks all the time. So just like 
prepare yourself and, and you know the way the guys talk to each other it, it can be seen as racist by us but, but that's how they communicate with one another and they're okay with that so you're going to see and hear things that you don't agree with that are going to be nasty so just accept that that's going to happen and it's a side effect of the job and try and look after yourself as best you can and then off the back of that if it is getting too much ask for help like don't sit and stew with it talk to your colleagues talk to your manager talk to whatever just talk to someone about it what was the best avenue of help that you found worked best for you um in the prison service you go out and get drunk with your team that was the way like because because it allows you to detach because from the prison once you step outside you're not at work anymore so you can fully detach from the environment and that way you can just talk you can talk freely about everything they know what you're going through they understand how you feel they've probably done it all in the police the same your team um there are certain guys in the police who are trained in not counseling but just helping you understand like traumatic events they're called diffusers in the force i was in so they would sit you down and talk through like if it was a particular incident they talk you through the incident understand how you're feeling and then they'd help you understand how your brain processes it and give you some tips on how to manage it they can then refer you into to counseling and stuff but it's it's not always great so i'd immediately lean on the people around you because they will also be able to say you need to go and see someone else because you know nhs waiting lists are long private therapy can be expensive doctors can help that's you know that's always there but yeah lean on your team first just a final few questions so obviously you have your TikTok, which is been doing very very well with the content that you've been putting i like to, i like to think so <laughs> um so why did why did you start sharing your experiences online because people asked um i started the the podcast just calling out something that rishi sunak saying on his election trail at the minute that i didn't think was right he said he's going to start making police record ethnicity of suspects we already did that when i was in so it's nothing new um and from there people asked questions why did you leave how long were you in what did you do you know so I just try my best to answer those questions. I've added a bit of entertainment value in there as well. Just try and make it relatable. Some people really hate that. You know, <laughs> oh, you only serve two years. How dare you make jokes about policing us? Okay, sorry. <laughs> uh, didn't realize there was a limit on how long I had to serve to do this, but all right. Um, you know, people seem to like it, seem to find it relatable. So I, I kind of ignore the naysayers and keep doing it. What's the goal with the sharing the content? I'd, I'll be honest. I don't really have one at the minute um i have people message me and they ask me questions about joining the police or they're in the police and they want to leave because that's sort of the unique career path that i've taken i've done both ways um and i'm always happy to to take conversations like that so whether that turns into something that i do i don't know to be honest but my goal at the moment is just i want to keep people informed about the police but from an easy to understand perspective because it's a very closed shop from the outside so I want people to feel that they know enough about, for example, if you get stopped and searched, you kind of know what to expect if you've never been stopped and searched before, what the police have to do, you know, in order to make that search legal and, and how to just make sure your rights aren't being infringed. And, you know, I might get frowned upon by the police and community for that, but like 
there needs to be a bit more transparency. I'm kind of hoping to bring that as well. So for those people that you just mentioned there, who you said, you know, maybe looking to get out of the police, but can't see a way out. What would you recommend for those kinds of people to do? Um, I, I always say the same things. There's a couple of things that needs to change. It needs to the policing mindset because there is there is a mindset. There's a lot of judgment within the force about leaving. Um, loads of people think it's the greatest job in the world and fair play to them. I thought that when I was in it as well. Um, and I still think it's, it is a good job. Um, but if you're not happy, you're not going to be doing the job well. So think outside of the policing mindset about what's in it for you long term. When you finish, you're finished. You don't have to take a warrant card out with you and be on duty the whole time. Um, you get your evenings and your weekends back. A bit more stability. I think try and find, accept that wherever you go, it's not going to be the police. You're not going to be able to do the high octane stuff that you do in the police. It's largely, like I, I work in an office or at home. Like it's, it's quite, but find a company whose values you agree with and whose product or mission you get on with. So the company I work in now does cyber security. Very into that, very into that. Because it's helping secure a lot of the world um, against threats. So I, I believe in that mission. So it makes it very easy to work there and enjoy it. And then I think look at the skills and experience that you've gained as a copper that can be transferable. So not necessarily in qualifications, unless you've got things like project management or leadership. But if you've got just a, as a PC, you know, I managed to negotiate my first corporate job out of the police using just the soft skills I had as a PC. So ability to talk to people, working to, with little to no information to very tight deadlines, you know, things like that. It all works out. But yeah, I'm always available for chats about that. I'll always reply to, to DMs and stuff if people send them. Right. Well, I appreciate you coming on, mate. It's, again, such a fantastic episode with so much insight. So I've absolutely loved it. Just tell everyone where they can find you online so that if they want to ask questions, they can, or if they want to just binge your content on TikTok, that they can do that as well. <laughs> yeah, so uh, TikTok, it's at Jack underscore Mason 94. And then I've got an Instagram page, but it's not really active at the minute, which is at Jack underscore Mason dot 94. Someone took the other one. So yeah, that's where I am. Nice one. Really appreciate you coming on. No, thank you very much for the uh, for having me back as well. Really enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed this second episode with Jack Mason. Again, Jack, thank you so much for your time. Such a great episode. Really loved talking about everything. Actually still blown away by the fact that we have a for king and country rule in the police. But what can you do? It's ridiculous. But yeah, anyway, I hope you enjoyed. Like, subscribe, share the podcast with anyone who may be interested. And I will see you next week for another episode of the podcast.